Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Mornings with Carmen here on the 14th of June. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge and delighted to start my day with all of you, I hope, as you're waking up this morning, that you find yourself with at least a wee bit of hope that persists inside of us that comes from our King Jesus, who will return one day. We carry that hope with us as we do some of the difficult conversations in our world, some of the hard things through which we have to walk, some of the confusing things that do keep us puzzled from time to time. There is a persistent hope that abides in the midst of that. And we want to bring that hope into so many of the different headlines of the day. Delighted to be with you, as always, too, Paul Perot in studio. Another Good great morning. show I had this morning. I just, well, that's the hope. I mean, that's the hope. I guess, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to overpromise. Good. I don't want to Our plans over, look really do, good. They do. But plans of men can be thwarted. We, yeah. we know that uh, quite clearly. And looking forward to talking with Mark Caleb Smith, a regular contributor to the show here in just a couple minutes. And, and we'll cover some of the topics that are in the news. One of them has me pretty disturbed this morning. Mm-hmm. I will say that. And, and that was the reports out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, of uh, a, a U-Haul filled with some white supremacists that were looking to descend upon one of the gay pride parades that are going on as part of how our country is celebrating Pride Month. And I want to be clear when I say that I'm not celebrating Pride yeah. Month. Uh, I believe that LGBTQ uh, and, and expressions of sexuality in that way are inconsistent with the kingdom. We'll talk more about this all throughout the morning about how to handle this topic in a, in a variety of ways and in a faithful Christian sort of way. But one way we don't want to advocate for handling for the topic is is the way of violence. Right. And this is what we saw, that they, they were going to disrupt this this U-Haul uh, filled with, I think it was maybe around a dozen or more. Uh, about, 30, about 31 people were arrested. It was 31. Yeah, yeah, 31 people. And part of something called the Patriot Front, uh, I something believe. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, that were, they were going to disrupt and, and through violence. And, and I think one thing that I think we can put um, maybe a bit of a line in the sand about this is that violence is never part of the expression of God's kingdom. Disruptive violence is not a way in which we try to enact how Jesus operates in this world. And and I think a lot of Christians probably, or there's some versions of Christians that would maybe sort of subtly sympathize with Mm -hmm. the Patriot front that would say, that's right. We need to, we need to respond to sort of the aggressive, uh, agendas of the LGBTQ community. We need to respond to that with aggressive agendas in kind. And and it just is disturbing that we would think that we need to meet aggressive agendas with aggressive agendas as we go back and forth. Well, then you're actually giving into a lot of the background presuppositions that make that worldview possible, uh, if you really want to think about it. I mean, this is something we've talked about with, um, oh, uh, Carl Truman, mm-hmm. and when it comes to – there's a whole bunch of worldview stuff that has been laid that, unfortunately, too many of us, even if we don't agree with the LGBT, there's some worldview stuff that we really need to think through because it's not biblical, it's not part of God's creational design, and that's what we need to address first and then graciously share with others and convince others about that because we're not going to just 
because of we're getting violent, stop this stuff. There's too much going on. Yeah, indeed. I think that's well said. And, and it's one of those topics that... Kind of vaguely said, actually. Well, it's really, <laughs> really nebulous concepts, but... But it, it, but it's important to at least dive into this topic a little bit more. I know that in the circles in which I run, and that is oftentimes institutional church settings, it, it is uh, within the University of Northwestern St. Paul, the, the main campus out of which Faith Radio broadcasts in, in that one of the main questions is what do we do in the midst of this ongoing gender blurring? We see all this stuff with Disney. We just see it all in our yeah. movies and television shows. And so I think it, it it's going to be worth threading this theme through the morning and addressing this headline uh, as in terms of the different angles of it, as we've talked about it. So you want to stay with us for these two hours ahead on Mornings with Carmen. We're going to address that theme and more with Mark Caleb Smith up next. This is Mornings Without Carmen. Peter Kapsner filling in today, and it's about 10 minutes past the top of the hour. We'll invite Mark Caleb Smith, who teaches political science at Cedarville University, into the program. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? Good. It's great to speak with you again. I always enjoy our conversations, and there's certainly a lot to cover, including one of the, the headlines that came out was that Joe Biden was relatively unequivocal in saying that he does plan on running again for re-election in 2024. Do we take this headline seriously? <laughs> Let me just say that it's a bad sign when you're president, when uh, the reelection is two years away, potentially, and you have to make it clear that, yes, indeed, you do plan on running for reelection. Um, that shows that there's an awful lot of noise within your own party that you feel like you need to address. Uh, Joe Biden has been saying that for a while, you know, ever since he ran the first time and for the last couple of years, that he will run. Um and he'll run for re-election, and he says as long as he's healthy, he'll run for re-election. But uh, <clears throat> everything that I keep hearing is that among Democrats, it's sort of an open secret that he will not run, and that it's clear he will not run, and that at some point that will be announced, probably after the midterms. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think we should take it seriously to some extent, uh, but I think more than anything, it reveals a lot of the struggles within the Democratic Party right now. Yeah, it is. I think he does have to say this, right? As we're approaching the midterms in November, if right. if the alternative option is he says I'm not going to run at that point, it's just going to throw the midterms into further disarray. And and I'm a political agnostic, meaning that I don't really um, look at how the kingdom might be operating through the political sphere. I think those are two different kinds of kingdoms. And so, in in saying that the Democrats look like they're going to get shellacked at this point in November, it isn't a celebration because I'm a Republican. It just is a noticing of what's going on politically in our country right now. And it sure doesn't seem like the, the Democrats are set up well. And for him to say, I'm actually stepping aside, might just add a bit more chaos to it. No, that's exactly right. I mean, when we look at the uh, the political climate, you know, political scientists and other people sort of refer to it as you know, the economy. We look at world events. We sort of look at big key indicators. Um, all those things are pointing against the Democrats. And then you add to that just sort of the typical historical uh, during the first year of a president's, you know, first term of a president, his midterm election, they typically lose around 26 seats in the House, five or six seats in the Senate. And that would be enough to turn both chambers over to the Republican Party, clearly. And so uh, it is not looking good right now for Democrats. But I think in some ways it's, it's even uh, worse because 
Uh, Joe Biden represents sort of the the old line traditional Democratic Party to some extent that we've seen in one form or another for the last 50 years. He's struggling against the progressive left wing of his party. He's not progressive enough to satisfy them. He's not pushing their legislation hard enough. And I think there's an awful lot of interest within that wing uh, to get rid of Biden and to push someone more progressive forward. Now, who that would be, I think it's a it's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure there's an obvious progressive standard bearer that could step forward and win a nomination, much less win a general election. Uh, but all the markers, all the indicators are certainly against the Democrats right now. And it's hard to see that turning around in the short term. Yeah, I'd be curious your thoughts on what you see from the standpoint of history is is sort of the collective memory of, of our country when we vote one way or the other. And, and the reason why I say that, Mark, is because I think people still remember pretty clearly what the presidency was like under Donald Trump, just in terms of why maybe some people who had voted for him voted against him ultimately because they were just weary of the constant capital letter Twitter's feed that that was being thrown out there every day. And on the flip side of it, I think we can safely say that some of these very progressively run cities in our country, that that those policies have yielded quite a bit of poverty and violence. And and there's a lot of chaos going on in these cities. And so it it seems like there might be a vote as a backlash against all of that. But do you think that's going to persist for a period of time? Because versions of socialism have had a bit of momentum these last maybe 10 years or so. Yeah, I mean, they those I think it's a great question. I mean, you look at those progressive policies as they have played out in places like San Francisco and Seattle and others. Um, they've really just been an unmitigated disaster. And, uh, you know, defunding the police is going nowhere. Uh, crime is spiking in those areas for sure. Um, and then you're looking at the Democratic Party right now, and it's basically inability to answer questions about inflation or deal with fundamental problems of supply and demand. Um, and they just seem ill-equipped to handle it. Uh, but as you said, I, I don't know. Uh, there's not, at least I think for most people, there's not sort of this rose-colored memory of Republicans in power uh, that gives them any sort of any sort of hope that things will really get better. You know, it reminds me of, and I was not alive during this period, but it reminds me studying historically. Um, we went from uh, Lyndon Johnson and a very tumultuous period of presidency that he had into Richard Nixon and the tumultuous period of Richard Nixon. And then we had Ford, uh, and then we had Carter. And so we had this period where it had very difficult leadership and not a lot of stability within the executive branch, not a lot of strong leadership necessarily, or if it was strong, it was sometimes in the wrong direction. Um, and I think that really damaged the country in a lot of ways. It, it, it eroded our trust in government. It eroded our trust in the executive and it took us a while to recover from that. And so I think we need we need to see a strong leader emerge uh, who will be able to calm things down a little bit, bring some stability to the executive branch. I think it would be welcome. Uh, in some ways, I think it would be welcome from everyone, regardless of what party that you're in. We want to revisit that Richard Nixon conversation, too, in just a couple of minutes and about the idea how scandal just seems to be something we're almost turning a blind eye to on either political party. But back to this 2024 conversation for just a minute. Can, can you imagine a scenario, Mark, where we see – Donald Trump running against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in 2024. That might uh, be interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think it would be interesting from a uh, from, from just a dramatic perspective to see those two on the stage arguing with each other. Uh, but I think she's far too progressive. And really, I think Trump is far too old, honestly, and far too disconnected. I think a lot of the implicit criticism of Joe Biden is that he's just not 
Uh, he's really having a struggle with the job because of how old he is and his difficulty to present a positive image. I think Trump is really not far removed from that either. So I think it would be good for the country if we just see fresh leadership in both parties emerge. Indeed, that's the voice of Mark Caleb Smith. We're going to step away for just a moment. But if you have a question for me or for Mark or for any part of the show this morning, please text us in at 877-933-2484. We'd love to hear from you. And up next, we're going to talk a little bit about the death of scandal in our country. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up. And he Mark, you like that big band music, don't you? I love it. Yeah, I love it. I think I was the classic person that was born a little bit too late. I would have loved to have grown up in that era of music for sure. That's great. We're talking with Mark Caleb Smith this morning as we kick off Mornings with Carmen on the 14th of June. He teaches political science at Cedarville University. And Mark, uh, we've seen the January 6th hearings, I suppose we could call them, in the news. And, and people are suggesting it was a scandal and it, and it very, very well might be just that. But it just seems like we go from one scandal to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Do we have a bit of scandal fatigue going on right now? <laughs> uh, scandal fatigue is, is a good way to label it. And you could even argue that since Watergate, you know, we've had sort of a gate fatigue. You know, we label everything gate and it just sort of gets exhausting for most people. Um, yeah, I, I think part of, you know, you said, do we have some fatigue about it? Part of it is, is we for those of us that are interested in politics, and that's not everyone, but for those of us who are interested in politics, we are absolutely flooded with information on a daily basis, whether it's social media or particular websites that we're interested in. There's just a, a mountain of, of information that we deal with. And I think scandals just sort of get folded up in that information. And I think it's hard for people sometimes to process through, you know, is this the kind of scandal that I should be worried about? Is this really uh, an existential crisis? Is this something that should end a presidency? And to process through that compared to all the other political information that they come across. Yeah, it seems like we live in a bit of a chicken little situation where whoever isn't in power in Washington, D.C. is claiming the sky is falling all the time. And and so it is hard to differentiate between what are legitimate, corruptive kinds of influences and what are just simply power grabs. Do you have any suggestions for people about how to cut their way through all of these different headlines and see with a little bit better clarity? Well, I think a lot of uh, a lot of what we're looking at in our political world right now is that you are effectively what you consume. In other words, uh, if you're consuming one certain kind of information, then you're going to think that way primarily, and you're going to be uh, you're going to be defining scandals through that sort of information more than anything else. And so, I really encourage people uh, to try to take in multiple points of view when they when they inform themselves about politics. So it may be looking at some websites or news outlets that are a little bit more progressive and some that are a little bit more conservative and maybe some that try to shoot it a little bit right down the middle. And you sort of add those things together and I think you get a better sense of reality. And I think you do get a better sense then of what really matters and what doesn't. But I honestly think there's no substitute for studying history and for studying uh, how our country works and how our government is designed to work. And then I think you have a little bit of perspective to look at, a, at an event and say, OK, the president is being accused of doing this. How does this compare to other events we've seen in our country's past? What kind of a threat is it to our system of government? Um, and then I think you're in a better position to make an independent judgment. But you know, the worst case scenario for me is when someone just sort of uh, takes in information, then repeats it, and they just sort of move on. 
Yeah, the text uh, line is lighting up with a few of your comments here, Mark. Uh, some of the different things maybe you can comment or just uh, some brief interchanges here. One person says uh, that uh, there are so many different scandals to which to pay, attend- uh, to pay attention to, and that includes Hillary Clinton and what happened there. It includes the Biden right. laptop. It, it obviously yep. includes January 6th. We have a couple other listeners uh, texting and saying that uh, nobody's ever held accountable. And so we yeah. sort of just yeah. kind of roll our eyes and say, well, here's another thing, but it, nothing's going to happen for many of it. And then I paid attention to this one. It's Flag Day today as well in that uh, we just take some time to appreciate our country but also pray for our leadership. So I, I think the accountability question comment is really spot on. Um, you know, Richard Nixon, you know, we opened this discussing Richard Nixon and Watergate just a little bit. Richard Nixon resigned from office, um, and you see very clear accountability with Watergate. Uh, he leaves office. He's tainted forever as president. But then we've seen a succession of scandals since then, some of them arguably as big as or bigger than Watergate. And we really haven't seen presidents held accountable in the same way. Um, but I, I, this may not be happy for people to hear, but in our system of government, accountability ultimately comes from us. Granted, we want our our, our, our uh, branches of government to be active. We want investigations to take place. But we at the ballot box hold politicians accountable. And we hold parties accountable when we cast our votes. And if parties don't get a sense and if politicians don't get a sense that voters are upset and that their behavior is going to have consequences, they have no incentive to change their behavior. Yeah, that's well said. And, and it bridges into another topic that I wanted to talk about. We just have a couple of minutes left to, to hit this this morning. But I think when we see the educational system as well, we have a, a long and rich history of education in our country, strong critical thinking, ways to process this really w- with some clarity. But we really have seen the decline in critical thinking and, and the ability to help people see with greater clarity what is going on. Education's gotten so expensive. It is mostly just jumping through hoops in order to get jobs. We really need to see a reemergence of careful thought. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And if we can get people to think clearly and carefully about key questions um, and then to use that information and to use that thinking to hold elected officials responsible, that's sort of the purpose of education within a Republican form of government like we have. And I think most people on both sides of the aisle would agree with that. Where they disagree over is what to teach. You know, what's the content primarily that we're going to put in front of students and that we're going to expect them to, to grapple with um, and then walk away um, as well-formed citizens. Right now, the struggle we're having is we don't agree on what it means to be a well-formed citizen. What kind of information goes into that and then what kind of outputs are we looking at? And that division, I think, is making this conversation much harder. Agreed. Another uh, person just texted in and said uh, part of the problem, too, is that even if we do engage in this careful thinking and, and we make our voices heard, it doesn't seem like people in power are listening maybe in the same ways they might have a few generations ago. Yeah, I, I agree with that um, because they don't need to listen. All the other lives tell them they're doing the right thing and there's no consequences for their actions. And so they just keep doing what they're doing. Um, politicians are rational creatures. They respond to their environment and our environment's telling them to keep pl- pressing forward because it benefits them. And that's I think that's the thing that we have to change if we're going to expect to see changes in our country. Agreed. And Mark, if we uh, wanted to engage a bit more in critical thinking and and ways to expand our mind and our thought, both ourselves, but also for our kids and for our grandkids, uh, it seems like helping them get out of some of the social media spheres where everything is reduced down to 150 characters or or quick thoughts. People just consume things so quickly and then move on. 
Uh, what, what would you suggest here as we wrap things up for, for ways of engagement that, that could be reliable as a means of developing critical thinking? Yeah, I, I want to just echo what you just said. You know, if you can uh, put down the phone, put down the laptop, pick up a good, uh, reasonable book, whether it's historical, whether it's political, and use that to reflect on, have discussions around that thing with other people, with all your technology put away, then I think that's really the, the key to developing um, those critical thinking skills as well as the ability to hold people above us accountable. Uh, but unless we're not, unless we're willing to do that, I just, it's hard to see a way out of this. The social media world is really constricting the kind of information that we absorb. Indeed. Well, I appreciate all of the comments coming in. Please continue to text us in this morning as different topics uh, create and prompt some thoughts from you. We have such great people all throughout the morning, including Mark Caleb Smith. Mark, thanks for joining us, getting us started on some really important topics today. Thank you, Peter. Always a pleasure and uh, good luck the way uh, the rest of the way forward. Appreciate it. We'll take a short break away and we'll preview what's coming up in the second half of this first hour of Mornings Without Carmen. So appreciate all your comments. Please keep texting in at 877-933-2484. Just really delighted to have Mark join us early like that and, and get through some of these difficult headlines in, in a careful and considerate way. One of the headlines we didn't get to with him was hearkening back to the beginning of the show when we talked about uh, the disruption of um, some white supremacists and, and they got caught before they wanted before they could disrupt a, a gay pride parade in Coeur d'Alene. And we, we, we talked a bit at the top about the idea that violence, uh, meeting violence with violence, whether it's violence, uh, physical violence or violence of spirit is never part of the kingdom. I think another comment we could make about that specific headline is that uh, the the church really needs to uh, clearly and prophetically say what is not true about LGBTQ and and how these forms of sexuality are inconsistent with with God's kingdom. But Paul, I I saw Top Gun yesterday, the new one, and I absolutely loved it. But uh, what I was a little bit disturbed by is that I invited my kids, uh, my 22-year-old and 20-year-old, to invite the f- to, to watch the first one with me so they could get caught up in the story. And I was really, really disturbed by the versions of sexuality being portrayed in the 1980s. It mm-hmm. was a wildly inappropriate show released in 1986. Just how crass they talked about sexuality mm-hmm. is that we do want to resist these newer versions of sexual expression. But it's with a mind of saying, but hang on. There's a long foundation on which sexual dis- depravity, I would say, mm-hmm. on which all of this stands. And so we also need to be mindful to look at, at how maybe we who grew up in the 70s, 80s and 90s and 60s and 50s helped even create the environment in which these kinds of thoughts could grow. That was what I was trying to get to ahead of time. There's just so much so much that has been part of our culture for so long to think we're going to weed it out just by... What they tried to do, these uh, these violent people in Idaho tried to do. No, you you have to dig in deeper. We got to remember again, as the as the church, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal; they are spiritual. We have the responsibility to cultivate this kingdom mindset, and we have to. Then we have to live it out. Right, and that's part of the problem people have right now. They look at us; we live so contrary to what the kingdom calls us to be. No wonder our witness is shot. Yeah, indeed. Three comments we can return to so far as we develop this headline. 
This morning one is that we never meet violence with violence, whether it is a, a violence of spirit uh, or a physical violence. Number two, um, sexual blurring and uh, what we see in the LGBTQ community is inconsistent with God's kingdom. We can say more about that. And number three, we need to take a hard look at the history uh, of the church over these last uh, 50, 60 years about how we even got to these points and, and maybe take a bit uh, of splinters, if not outright logs, out of our own eye as well. Up next, we'll be talking with good friend Gary Stratton. Father's Day is this Sunday, and we're going to talk about how we can honor our fathers. Now, I know I'm not supposed to have favorite walk-up music, but if I did, that would probably be my favorite walk-up music. It's Gary Stratton, Dr. Gary Stratton, Dean of College of Arts and Sciences at Johnson University. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Peter. Looking forward to our, our conversation back and forth today. We're going to talk a bit about Father's Day. And uh, as you're listening again, if you've got things that you wanted to honor your father with, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Gary and I would. Again, 877 933 Two four eight four and Gary, as you and I were chatting back and forth in preparation for this, uh, you told me and reminded me that you're right on the cusp of the anniversary uh, of ten years from which your father passed. Yeah, he died uh, ten years ago tomorrow. And as you reflect back on life with your father, and, and now even ten years removed from the last time you've been able to have fellowship with him here on this side uh, of heaven, what are what are some of the first thoughts that come into your mind? That's amazing how parents stay with you, uh, even when they're gone, and uh, you just find yourself turning to them. There's even 10 years later, predictable times I would have called my dad that I'll start to call him, oh, I guess I can't do that. Hmm. And I just spent a couple of weeks writing up at uh, the lake house that he loved, which I was there because we were selling it, uh, sadly, with my mom's passing this past February. And uh, a boat came out of the fog that was just like his pontoon boat mm. and with a single, just one old guy in it with a fishing hat, just like his. And I almost jumped in the water uh, and swam out to him because it just, uh, it hurts even all this time later. Well, and I, my, my father is still with us here on earth and, and I'm fortunate enough to have such a good relationship with him. Uh, there are times in which I'm walking around in just maybe the mall or perhaps sitting at a restaurant or just driving my car and, and I swear that I see my dad. It turns out to be somebody mm. different, but, I, but I, yes. I'm convinced at first it's him. I'm guessing you've probably had those experiences over these last 10 years. Many times. Do you have words that specifically echo in you about things that your dad said that you, you talk about parents stay with you? Uh, any specific words that you remember? Well, it, it, to be honest, it's the last words he ever said to me. Mm. To my knowledge, um, my father never said, I love you my entire life. Um, it was of a different generation. We can talk about some of his uh, foibles growing up in an alcoholic home. But uh, the very last day, uh, he was going in for a, surge, a procedure we knew he would not recover from. And I kept saying, I love you, Dad. And he kept saying, I'll see you in a little while. And I love you. And finally, he just looked at me and said, I love you, son. Hmm. And uh, I, I'm very, very grateful for that uh, going out the door blessing. Yeah. One of the concepts that I think is really important to talk about related to what you just said is that um, people are only given a certain amount in life. And, and, and being a faithful steward of what we've been given just means carrying it as far as we can and wringing out every last drop. But but, uh, but life is such a, a generational play, Gary. And, and so 
I'm guessing that there's some things that your father could only take so far, given the background in which he grew up. I know that was true for my own father as well. Um, just having some difficult things from my grandfather, who I loved uh, as well, but there were some difficult things in the house. But he carried the ball a, a certain distance, and then he he handed off some of those things to my brother and me. And, and our job is to keep carrying that ball forward. And, and I'm guessing you have some of that in your life too. No, I certainly do. Um, uh, you know, there's this story that was one of the first stories that I remember my dad telling me. It's more of a joke, uh, and I'll tell it to you because it's it's just so indicative of life. He would tell the story. There was a little boy who loved his father so much that every night he would wait for his dad to arrive home from work, run down their walkway, take a flying leap off the top step into his papa's arms. His father would drop his briefcase, catch him, and swing him around in his burly embrace, and the little boy would laugh and laugh. Then one day, the little boy jumped. His father moved out of the way. Sailing through the air, the little boy crashed onto the concrete driveway, skinning his knee and blooding his lip. And through his tears, the little boy wailed, why, Papa, why? And his drunken father looked down at him and mocked, that's to teach you a lesson. Mm. Never trust anyone. Mm. And, and, and Yeah, go ahead. Finish that thought. Well, because he that thought that was... Oh, well, he thought it was such a great job, but he had no idea how he's just telegraphing his, that was his inner life. He had a father who he loved until he would touch a drop of alcohol. And then he would say he would just hate him with an unholy passion. He was totally untrustworthy. Just like most people who are struggling with an addiction, they can be wonderful for when they're not on their drug and terrible otherwise. And it just so influenced him and so influenced our household. And I don't think he ever saw it till the end. Mm. Talking Father's Day with Dr. Gary Stratton. He's the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Johnson University. If you have some thoughts or comments, questions, memories of your own father as we approach Father's Day this weekend, we'd love to hear from you at 877-933-2484. Gary, part of the experience of even honoring our fathers and our mothers is that um, we we are authentic about what happened. And, and we, we come to grips with what happened because no father, no mother is perfect too. And as much as I think many people have the good fortune of having great parents, there's always inevitably going to be things that we need to forgive. And, and that includes my wife and I, we tell our own kids that, that they're going to need to forgive yes. us certain, certain things. <laughs> we'll right? pay for their therapy. Right, right exactly. <laughs> so, when, you know, when it comes, and especially in a situation where maybe you've lost a parent and you don't have a chance to even have further conversations, what does loving and forgiving imperfect fathers look like? I think it, it's a combination of of focusing on the things you're grateful for without minimizing what happened to you, because that you know that can be a way to just let them off the hook in a way that you don't deal with your how that impacted you, uh, and then just taking a good look at um, family systems. Uh, I got to confess that when my kids started taking family systems classes as part of their majors, <laughs> they started asking me questions and they, I did not have answers to. I realized I. I kind of pulled the wool over my own eyes about how uh, how my family had impacted me for good and for ill. And because my my parents were remarkable people in many ways, it was an idyllic household. I, they they stayed together. They always provided for us. My dad came out of that horrible background to be a president of an aerospace uh, company. I mean, just uh, but just that inability to ever uh, connect on an emotional level. I mean, mm. never developed it. 
Yeah, and and part of honoring is that you are gracious with your parents, and and uh, right. in some ways, right? I mean, it, it it you don't deny the difficulty there, but there is a, a dispensing of grace that you can offer to your parents that doesn't necessarily keep them on a pedestal that maybe you had them on at the age of three, four, five, six, but still honors them as a proper place as a shepherd in your life. And and so to have a combination of grace and gratefulness at the same time. Yeah, I got a wonderful gift from the Lord. It's when he was doing some soul work in me um, about my dad's, one of the things of adult children of alcoholics, they they want to control everything. So they're very controlling. My dad rarely spoke to me without criticism or critique. And I mean, I, I don't know what happened. Sue was praying for me one day and I literally was like in my mind's eye, I was present at this experience in my life where I was seven years old. And uh, my dad was the umpire of a baseball game. First time I ever batted in a baseball game. And the only time he ever was umpire in a game. And the kid was walking everybody. You know, and uh, the, he did not throw three good pitches, but my dad called me out on three pitches. <laughs> and I was just devastated. And uh, and so I just relived the experience. I'm crying and she's praying for me. And then I'm up at the plate again. And I look back and Jesus is back there, mm-hmm. the umpire. Mm-hmm. And the pitcher throws... <laughs> Three straight strikes, and Jesus calls them all balls. <laughs> four, third, four strike ball, he goes to first base, says, I always have your back. But at the end, it changed. After I balled for a while, it changed again, and now my dad was back there again. But now I could see all the connections, all the things connecting to him out of his past that just made it impossible. Unless that kid rolled the ball on the ground, he was going to have to call these pitches strikes. And I was just so overwhelmed with compassion for him. Hmm. for how controlled he was. And I, it was a turning point in our relationship when I just let go, uh, holding the past against him mm, and, I think, and loving him for who he was. Yeah, I think that's what, what forgiveness looks like a bit, right? It, it's that ability to ask God to intercede. And in this case, in, in quite a dream and a story, um, where where the power of the past doesn't carry forward into the present. It doesn't mean that these things didn't happen, but somehow we're able to either reimagine them or see them differently so that they don't hold the same kind of power in our lives moving forward. Yes. No. And that's, I mean, that's what healing is. That's what forgiveness is. It, you can't, you can't deny it happened, Indeed. Um, but we, we can stop holding it as a, a judgment over the person. That's the voice of Gary Stratton. We're going to step away for just a moment. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation on Father's Day and talk a little bit about what it means to not transfer our experiences with our own father onto our heavenly father. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. About 14 minutes before the top of the hour, chatting with Gary Stratton about Father's Day. And Gary, I know that you are going to be presiding over the wedding ceremony for your own son. I I am. I'm a little <laughs> with some trepidation, <laughs> but I feel very honored to be able to do that. I love that. And your son is is pretty typical of what we're seeing these days, that people are getting married much later in life. Tell us about that. No. Well, you know, it, up until about 1980, um, there was pretty much you went from your parents' family to your partner's family. Like you created your own family and then there was this brief four years of transition called college. Well, that transitional time is now stretched out um, from 18 to about 35, uh, pretty typically, uh, where your friends are your family, that you develop a a close, try to develop a close group of friends. uh, And they become your family as you kind of retry things out. Uh, I think that's why shows like friends uh, and 
new girl and everything else are so popular because this is what, you know, this is kind of the way things are done. And, uh, it, you know, and to be honest with you, in light of the lifespan now, you know, where the average life expectancy was 38 to marry at 15 probably made a lot of sense, but with the average lifespan for this generation now is up close to 80. Uh, maybe it makes perfect sense to take a while to get some maturity before uh, you build a family. Yeah, I think what you just said is the most important, but maybe less talked about, at least talked about dimension of why people are getting married at later ages. It is because of life expectancy. People are simply living a lot longer. And that does mean that as parents that we're tending to parent quite a bit longer for a lot of our young people that uh, I would suggest that life in your 20s is pretty much akin to life in your teens, maybe a couple generations ago. Wow, man, we could talk forever about we're preparing a whole class on the quarter life crisis just that students face when they get out of college. Uh, it's just a whole new world. Um, I agree. I think Sue and I were shocked at how much more parenting we started doing with our kids in our 20s than we had since they were quite quite young. Yeah, it is. Uh, many sociologists have commented recently that it is some of the most disorienting times. Again, I remember my my adolescence being primarily teenage years, and those were very disorienting. But by the 20s, there was a sense in which that maybe you had your first job and possibly got married, and, and there was a path ahead that looked stable, at least outside looking in. It didn't often prove stable, but but people in their 20s really are very disoriented. And they do continue to look to their parents sometimes, uh, and we have a lot of broken families, but uh, sometimes they do continue to look at their parents, not just to help shepherd them, but their parents are often those that mediate ideas about God to them. And and so how do we be careful to not impose ideas of God or uh, from our parents on God? Because God and our parents are different, right? But th- there's a natural, I experienced this from my own dad, that must be true of my heavenly father. Oh, that, I mean, that just, I think it's the way we're wired, um, to transfer our, the bonding we do with the significant others in our life. And it, and then that we tend to transfer that onto the universe in general, relationships in general, but certainly onto God. Um, I think it's done with mothers as well, but, uh, because, uh, in most religious traditions, including ours, God is a father. Uh, it ends up becoming a significant issue, though. I remember Donald Miller saying once that that seems like a marketing mistake, given how bad <laughs> modern fathers are. Uh, but to be just to become aware of it, of the tendency is I'm I am going to in my default mode parent like my parents parented. Um, no matter how much I tell myself I'm not going to, you know, it's going to take therapy, it's going to take reading, it's going to take prayer, it's going to take books. Uh, I mean, in my own son was uh, the son who's getting married was a turning point. He he was quite a handful. He will tell you, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I just typically like my dad had whenever he went hard, I came back hard, and then he went came back harder, and then I came back harder, and it just kept escalating. And just praying desperately for wisdom one day and doing some reading that you know the next time that happened when he went hard, I went soft. Mm. Well, it, and he went softer, and then I went softer. And he was, so I ended up with him on my lap crying. So I, I realized, wow, I need to not be like my dad on these in some of these key things, though I do want to be like him in other things. Well, it brings up a question too: How, when we want to become a, a better father, um, what what are some of the reliable pathways that we can walk in order to become a better father? You know, I honestly, I don't want to be simplified, oversimplify this. Like the Bible is always the answer to everything. Cause I think good therapy is one of the things you really need mm. to unpack your own stuff. So you don't put it on your kids. But I just, I think we miss how the fatherhood of God um, is the heart 
of the Sermon on the Mount and that prayer is the circulatory system of that fatherhood. Um, I, I just wish that we just had where it could declare a moratorium and every Christian in America would spend uh, one year looking at nothing but the Sermon on the Mount um, and seeking to live and follow it out because there, there is so much rich treasure there in terms of his father care, uh, in terms of uh, his giving us what we want and not what we want, what we ask for, not always what we want, <laughs> this mm. is what we need, um, being attentive, being caring, being focused. Um, I think to kind of reparent our, our idea of God different from our, from our earthly fathers. And that isn't always an easy process uh, to do to, to, again, we're kind of back in that conversation about how we can offer grace to our earthly fathers, even while we experience our heavenly father different. But on the flip side of this, let's say that you were a father um, and, and continue to be a father, but now you're into your fifties and sixties and seventies and, Maybe you're becoming a grandfather, and and even as a grandfather, uh, I see it now at, at my age. I'm not a grandfather yet, and uh, I hope to be someday. But I can already see some of the things that I did in my early 30s, per se, that I thought, oh man, I just I I, I wish I knew then what I seem to know now. And I'm sure I'll say that uh, 20 years from now too. It's always a journey, right? But but as a grandfather, um, are there things that you can do in the roles of your grandkids, assuming that there's access in a healthy family dynamic? Uh, in which you continue to father in some ways, even though you're a grandfather? Well, I'm not a grandfather yet, but if my kids are listening, um, <laughs> I'd want to be. Um, but, right. uh, um, you know, that's where my dad was actually a great model for me. Um, he did not really begin to become engaged in my life till I was in my 20s. We started meeting regularly for lunch, even though we didn't live particularly close to each other. Uh, and that became a real rhythm and a habit in our life. And he started doing that with, um, especially with my son, who's now getting married when they lived reasonably close to each other. And it had an enormous influence on him. Um, I just, just having, uh, an older male who's not your dad <laughs> in a mentoring role, listening, uh, offering advice, waiting till you're, till it's asked for, <laughs> mm. um, is such a profound and powerful thing. And by then my father had come to faith. And so he was able to help think through faith issues. And my father had spent his whole life in the business world, which I have not. And so my son who was making his way in the business world had someone, a safe person outside the context, uh, of his daily life to, to process things and to think things through, um, I, I think that's a profound, I think that's why God gave us grandparents and great grandparents mm. to have these non-parental, deeply connected to us mentors in our life. Agreed. Gary, we have just about a minute left or so. Um, if people that are listening today ha have the privilege of still having their earthly father here, um, any suggestions of, of what they could maybe say or do just to honor them in this week ahead? Oh, just tell them, mm. just tell them, just love on them. My Jordan, same son again, got called me. Um, couple of weeks ago and we had a really mushy long hour long conversation. <laughs> and, uh, he said, dad, I just want to know that, I, that I called because we'd spent, he was with all his, his buddies, his family of friends the day before the day before. So everybody's talking about their dads and I talked about mine too, but I had the best one in the room. Mm. Love it, yeah, Gary. Met a lot. Yeah, no, I love that, Gary. Well, happy Father's Day. Um, what, a, what a privilege to be able to officiate the wedding of your son. I know it's a few months down the road. And uh, and I think you and I should talk to our own kids and say, maybe whoever has the first grandkid gets the full inheritance of both families. 
<laughs> great, good idea. I love it. Happy Father's Day, Peter. Yeah, you too, Gary. Thanks. Have a great rest of the week. We'll take a short break and wrap up our first hour of Mornings Without Carmen. Boy, I sure love talking with Gary Stratton. He just has a, a way of cutting to the chase on so many things and being invitational, gracious, loving, truth-filled, all of those things that we're looking for in people. Uh, if you missed any part of this first hour, we had a chance to talk with Mark Caleb Smith at the top of this hour about some of the different headlines of today. And, of course, we just finished that conversation with Gary Stratton on Father's Day. You can head to MyFaithRadio.com if you did miss those. And check out the Mornings page with Carmen. You can uh, can catch up on the entire Hour And Paul Perot, we've got a pretty exciting hour, too, coming up as well. I know that we're going to kick off the hour with Justin Gibney, regular mm-hmm. contributor. We have Juneteenth that we're celebrating this. Juneteenth this, this Sunday, know, yes. This Sunday. Along and, with and Father's Day. Exactly. There's just a lot to get to in terms of healthy relationships in which we can walk. And I can't think uh, of too many better ways we can witness as a community of faith than be walking in loving, grace-filled, truth-filled kinds of relationships. And and we really need to have both of those. It needs to be truth-filled, but it needs to be grace-filled. And I think sometimes when we think about bearing witness and when we think about sharing our faith, so often it's telling the story of Jesus. And it does involve that, but there needs to be a demonstration of these things as well in the way we walk them out in the world. Exactly. And again, that come, part of that is, you know, we liked being the person who's right. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Paul. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we want to be the, per- but are we seeking the welfare of the other person mm-hmm. in showing them the right and in, in proclaiming the right? Yeah. And sometimes balance. And sometimes even as kids, as Gary said, that we can offer that back towards our parents of both Father's Day and Mother's Day all throughout the year, actually, that, that we can honor in ways that uh, both forgives, but also um, restores relationships moving forward. Stay with us. Hour two on Mornings Without Carmen is coming up next. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.